1: From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. For most of those of us who create horror for a living, it's much more than a job, it's a passion. For whatever reason, whether it's being an outsider in our youth, feeling like the underdog or a monster, seeing familial conflict all around us, or just because we love the rush of a really good scare, we care about the past, the present, and the future of horror. There is a long straight line that runs through Mary Shelley and Bram Stoker to Stephen King and Clive Barker and Paul Tremblay. The line running from Paul Wegener, Lon Chaney, Todd Browning, and James Whale threads through Alfred Hitchcock, Jack Arnold, and Ray Harryhausen, around George Romero, Toby Hooper, Dario Argento, and John Carpenter, through Joe Dante, John Landis, David Cronenberg, Wes Craven, weaving around Peter Jackson and Sam Raimi, and ending up in our current world horror leaders like James Wan, Mike Flanagan, Ty West, and so many others. What's special about our genre and the makers who live in it is their obvious passion for the subject, their knowledge of its history and their eager consumption of it. What I discovered during the course of our masters of horror dinners is that this group of filmmakers more than any other wants everybody to do well. They come out and support the movies of their peers. They congratulate jobs well done and public and critical successes. We are in it for the long run, and we are excited when we see our fellow horror makers do something new and exciting and groundbreaking and box office breaking. But it is the interest and knowledge of horror history that can be most impressive. To sit and talk genre films with Ernest Dickerson or Joe Dante or Quentin Tarantino or Eli Roth is to discover the depths of their academic knowledge of the genre we care so much about. Eli is returning for his second time to the podcast. We talked about his history last time, five years ago, but a lot has happened in the world since we last spoke. And once called The Future of Horror by Quentin Tarantino, he's become one of the most articulate raconteurs on the subject. We'll pick up where we left off with Eli right now. Eli, welcome back.
2: Thanks, Mick. Great to be here.
1: It's so good to see you again. You know, most recently, I listened to Quentin and Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery's Video Archives podcast, mm-hmm. and you were a guest on that, talking jalo movies. And your knowledge is so obviously encyclopedic and so filled with love that it was thrilling to hear you talk about this. I know you come from a father who was at the Harvard School of Medicine a mother who's an artist, but the academia of of your knowledge is so impressive and fulsome. So tell me a little bit how that love was created.
2: Oh, well, thank you, Mick. Uh, you know, it's it's so funny because when I talk to like you or Joe Dante or, you know, The Masters and Tarantino, I always feel like, like a kid who walked into the video store and you're the guys behind the counter that have seen every <laughs> movie and man, do I have some catching up to do. So I think that that feeling for me has never gone away. I never felt like, wow, I know everything. I, I still feel like, oh, my God, I I have so many movies to watch. I have so much to catch up on. And I think that's a great thing, especially when you discover a new director or, you know, the way technology changes and suddenly a lot of the Jallo films that Bill Lustig was the only one remastering and bringing them over one movie at a time. Now you can get everything on. Amazon Prime Video or Shutter or Arrow Channel. So we live in a great time where suddenly everything is accessible and it's like a new reboom of what we experienced in the 80s with VHS. Um but I I looked at Tarantino who considers, you know, movie watching it's not just a job, it's his life, it's his passion and I thought this is what I I have to be. I mean if I can average you know, try and do a movie a day or two movies a day. And obviously that doesn't always work because um, real life intervenes. Um, but you look at like, when I see Edgar Wright will publish his list of all the movies he's watched lately, I get jealous. I'm like, oh <laughs> man, if I had gotten up two hours earlier or just not watched that TV show, I could have watched movies. And then I started thinking, God, I, I'm going to die without having seen all the movies I want to see. So I think there's uh, you know, I, I just love it. And it fires me up. And I like to see what's new. I mean, whether it's Barbarian or Smile or TV shows like Severance, like whatever is the new thing that someone's like, have you seen Squid Game? You got to check this out. Like, I get really, really excited when I see something. And I, I have that kind of thrill that I had when I was a kid. Well,
1: it's kind of what this show is about for me is I get to meet all these people, some of them classic technicians from from the 70s or 60s. And some of them, you know, we had Parker Finn on, we had Roy Lee on about Barbarian. We've had uh, Helena Ryan from Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. And I just keep feeling like the genre is constantly in a state of reinvention in in a very passionate way. And, and it you know, you were the future of horror, according to Quentin, in your beginnings with, with Cabin Fever. But now, you are a, a veteran spokesman for the genre.
2: Well, it's funny because you think it goes fast. Remember that first Masters of Horror dinner, which would have been twenty years ago, and yeah. you were look. You are a huge inspiration, Mick, in many ways, not just artistically, but also. And I've told you this before, but I'll say it again because it's been five years and people are listening <laughs> anew. Um, you, you really helped set the table literally in, in how everyone supports everyone. It became like a safe space where we could all talk to each other about, because we get raked over the coals by, you know, whether it's the MPAA, whether it's the studio execs, whether it's the critics, whether it's protests outside our movies, you know, to us, it's fun. It's magic tricks and we're having a great time. It's like a big party, but you know, we're pushing people's buttons and we know that. Um, but it was great to be able to kind of confidentially ask you guys how you did it, how you got stuff through, what it was like. And, you know, now I remember, you know, sitting at that first table, whether it's Stuart Gordon or Toby Hooper or Wes Craven or Larry Cohen. And I remember as they, you know, started dying, just thinking like, God, that story that Toby told me at dinner about making Texas Chainsaw Massacre and all the, the, meat and all that stuff starting to turn rancid and then they (laughs) the people they were burning all these dead animals in a farm nearby and all the smoke went into the tented room they were in and everyone was throwing up between takes like how could that not be cataloged somewhere unless you knew where to look for it and one of the reasons i wanted to do history of horror and you were so instrumental in helping me bring everyone together um it certainly wasn't financial i just wanted like a record of these stories And what the show turned into, it was such a pleasure, was watching everyone enjoy each other's films. It's so fun when you see a director you love, talk about another director's movie in the same way that you love it. And I remember as a kid reading Fangoria, when you'd look at photos of like Steven Spielberg and Joe Dante and you and John Landis, and you're like, wait, they're all friends? How cool is that? (laughs) Like, what would that be like to be at that table with those people talking about that stuff? Because I do think that there is kind of a, definitely an outsider quality and a real kind of kinship of people, you know, nerding out about horror movies. You seem like, why would you enjoy this kind of thing? And then you're talking about an eyeball being chopped out and, a, you know, a beautiful <laughs> kill in a film. You seem like a maniac. Um, but also when you find someone that speaks your language, it's like, oh, I've connected with another alien on planet Earth. And you were really a, you know, a major, major part of that, certainly for me and for Richard Kelly and for, you know, so many others. And anyone who made a film, I was like, oh, we'll bring you to the next Masters of Horror, whether it was Rob Zombie and then Quentin joined us. It was just, uh everything was so, it was just such a great time.
1: Well, thank you, but it was, you know, I don't consider it my dinners, I consider it our dinners. And and that's why the doors were open to anybody who had had directed a horror film, particularly, you know, well, specifically a horror film. But meeting so many people and constantly, you know, younger filmmakers with exciting new careers who are doing something new, like yourself when you did Cabin Fever, and then seeing this tremendous growth, watching your blossoming into Hostel and beyond, you know, uh, we talked about what that was like watching you go from the small cabin fever to slightly bigger but much more ambitious and much more accomplished version of of hostel and watching all of these filmmakers grow and evolve even the ones who are already mature
2: yeah it's it's a pleasure and look you 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 know everyone has that competition with themselves and with other people and this feeling of like oh god I, they're doing this kind of a movie i should be doing that how come i'm not there and it's it's all the kind of all that's that's shadow side of yourself the self-doubt all the stuff that's not real but that can that that every writer director creator struggles with of like okay my life is my own and this is what it is and this is the path i'm on and they're on their path and i'm on my path but i will say this that there really is a kinship with the people that make horror movies and you know i was i saw parker finn's short film so i've been texting with him from before smile. And I just knew, I just knew from talking to him, the movie was going to be a sensation and it was testing really well. And, but I saw from his short, I was like this guy. And of course I was trying to get him to direct a project. And I'm like, I wouldn't take anything until the, I, I get it, but I I'm doing my due diligence, but don't take anything until this movie comes out. Cause you're going to have your pick of whatever you want to do, whether it's writing or going anywhere. Um, And I remember when James made Saw and bringing James Wan to the dinners and taking him around Hollywood, like it just, I think that everybody wanted the directors to fight the way the monsters in the movies fight, like the way (laughs) that it was like, people are so used to like Godzilla versus King Kong versus Godzilla and Freddy versus Jason and Dracula, like they wanted a war between the directors and they didn't realize that like everyone's friends, everyone's helping each other out. We all, you know, everyone's not always all hanging out because we're, you know, the age where everyone is like kids and families and stuff now. But, you know, when someone makes a film like A Smile, um, everybody celebrates it. Like we're all on text with each other. We go, Dude, you see Smile? Oh, my God. Wait, don't spoil it. Don't spoil it. OK, OK, it's going to text me as soon other. as you've seen it. So we're not I, we don't. I'm not going to spoil it. But like, yeah, they, there is this feeling like when a new thing comes out, that's awesome Everyone is really excited about it. You know, even Archive 81, which James Wan produced, oh. which I was so mad they canceled. I was telling everybody to watch it. I love that show. Oh, that and was then they're like, show. Nope, it's not going to continue. I'm like, oh man, continue uh. it as a graphic novel or something. Just write that story. I want to, I want to see where it goes. So you know that it it is a nice kinship with uh the other, the other filmmakers and seeing what they're doing. When someone does something great, we're excited about it.
1: Yeah. It's, it's really great. And it it's because we're coming from a shared gutter in the mainstream. You know, we are not respected. We're constantly thought of as a lesser genre when it actually takes a lot more to make a good horror movie, because it's got to be a good drama before it's a good
2: horror movie. Of course. It's also, there's a, um, there is a thing of like, horror is so much about your personal obsessions. Like, I don't, you know, David Lynch's movies are so personal and the things that are in them are so personal. And he was a big inspiration of mine. And same thing with Quentin, the stuff that he obsesses over, it's very personal to him. So I also feel like, yeah, there's the sort of studio movie jobs that I'll compete with other directors for, but really the stuff that I really just want to get back to is writing and directing my own thing. So I think that that most of the directors of horror movies also write their own material. So you're not really in the same kind of competition because, you know, that kind of ghost story that James Wan comes up with or Lee Whannell comes up with, I'd never in a million years would have come up with them because it's stuff that's very personal to them. So I think that there's just also a certain amount of respect, you know, for directors that write and direct because we know how hard it is to look at a blank page. And we don't always do it. And sometimes we co-write and we adapt. There's something, and I'm not knocking movies that are adaptations. I'm directing one right now. I mean, I always will rewrite stuff, but there is a thing where you're like, yeah, you sat there, you had a nightmare, you wrote it down and you turned it into something, you raised the money, you got it. And you like we all know how difficult that is because On paper, horror just doesn't really read. It's not like a novel. When you read, obviously, Stephen King's books, they're so, or Clive Barker, they're so descriptive and so scary, you can't put that level of description into a screenplay or it'd be 600 pages. So the thing I always get is people go, well, it wasn't that scary or, or you can't <laughs> do that or no one's going to see that. That's like, and, and then you feel like you're all alone. And then you talk to you and you talk to Landis and you talk to Joe Dante and everyone's like, oh yeah, oh my God, everyone passed on that movie. And you're like, what? How could they have that? But it's a classic. It's like, it was a classic now, but back then <laughs> nobody wanted to touch it. So it's interesting. Well,
1: you know, five years ago when we last talked, I was finishing the mix on Nightmare Cinema and you were in the editing room on uh, death wish so that was something kind of outside of what you're talking about it was a job a, a studio job doing an adaptation a remake of a classic action thriller tell me about your experience with that and how it was like or unlike the kind of work that you choose to do
2: well, my first five films, I was like, I wrote it, produced it, directed it. And, you know, even though knock knock was a kind of a loose remake of the Peter Trainer film Death Game, um, the others are, you know, my own creation. So I I felt ready to do it. I felt like I was getting really pigeonholed, not just as a low budget horror guy, but I felt that I was putting constraints on myself as a filmmaker where I was like, you know what? I love doing stuff in 24 days or 40 days and getting one or two takes and just barely getting by getting through the shoot. As we all know that feeling, it might be nice. What if I could have a crane for more than one day? What if I could have <laughs> steady cam for 12 days instead of two? And so I started thinking that this actually I'm now hit sort of a ceiling in my directing. And if I want to grow to the next level, I'm going to have to show that I can handle a movie star one who kind of had a tough reputation after cop out and certain things. And, you know, that I can bring a movie in on budget and that I know how to spend the money. I can take my low budget skills and do a $30 million movie and make it look like 60 million. Cause to me, it's more money. I, my God, I'm shooting with helicopters now. It's incredible. So (laughs) um, I was really excited. I think I was really ready for it. I was ready to kind of work with a star at Bruce's level. Um, And I had a really great producer in Roger Burnbaum and terrific writer with Dean George who I loved and Joe Carnahan had the movie for a while. And then I took it over for him and Joe was super supportive and super nice. And, you know, had sort of quit the project very publicly. So the, I think they wanted someone that would come in and just kind of steady the ship and be collaborative and wasn't going to, you know, make them look bad on a website or something, or that was their perception of it. Um, I certainly see Joe's point of view, but, it was, it was a great experience. I had to show that I was ready to play in the Hollywood sandbox with other adults and that I was open. You know, my comfort zone was horror and I had sort of cut up every body part I could. I'd shocked everyone as much <laughs> as I could. I, I had people wanting to kill. I had people so angry at me. I'd been protested by every group imagined, but I was like, where do I go? And I thought, yeah, you know, let me do Death Witch. It was a classic action revenge movie, vigilante movie. I love those movies. And what's my take on it? And how can I work my stuff in there? And then after that, it was House of the Clock in its Walls where I, I could finally make an Amblin movie. I really wanted to make a PG horror movie, not pg And PG-13. a beautiful one.
1: I mean, it's, it's a film not everybody has seen. It had its level of success when it came out, but it was something so totally unexpected from you. and And so this was your attempt to make an Amblin movie.
2: Oh, yeah. I I mean, I love those movies, but, you know, uh, my my brother's kids, my son, everyone is like the the gateway movies for getting into horror are Hocus Pocus (laughs) and Gremlins and Beetlejuice. Like there's there's only a handful of spooky stuff. I mean, for me, it was Escape from Witch Mountain, those kinds of films. But there aren't a lot of straight PG movies that if you have a child who's eight or nine years old and they want to see something that's spooky and fun, but still safe, um, you know, that classic, the way E.T. was for me, it was scary, but I knew it was going to be okay in the end. Um, that kind of scary Spielbergian film. And I i loved it. I had such a great time doing it with Jack Black and Kate Blanchett and, um, you know, Owen, our, our, our lead, was he was so fantastic. Um, we just had a... Uh, We just had a great time making the movie. It was a beautiful experience. And the film really turned out the way I wanted to. And it did really well for them. And it was like, it felt like an old school. I really hit the tone. I felt like now it's coming together. I can have a vision. I can make it look beautiful. I can make it, you know, a big kind of theatrical film. They did IMAX versions of it. It was everything, everything I wanted. And it it sort of got me to, then I sort of pivoted and was also doing my documentary Finn at the time. so I was leaving the edit room to like go to Liberia and go on shark fishing boats with like military people guarding me with with rifles. It was insane. I was and telling this was them, a really was important
1: step in your career because you were doing something not for success, but you had a point to make,
2: yeah. I know I had to do it. I was like, if i I'd been working with Shark Week and getting very, very involved in shark conservation, um, and you I mean, look, you go to a future with that Shark Allies has set up, you'll see how dire it is. There's a whole industry of death. It's like the smoke cigarette industry. It's a complete lie. Sharks are so terrible for humans to consume and so necessary to keep the ocean healthy. They actually call the sick and dying fish. I, I just couldn't believe that we're killing what at the time was 100 million. Now they say it's up to 200 or 250 million a year. I mean, they take, some of them take 11 years to reach sexual maturity and we'll have like eight or nine pups. I mean, they're going to be gone. We're killing 20,000 an hour. It's, and and I couldn't believe it. So I had to see it for myself. So I went to China. I went to Mexico. I went to Liberia. You'll see me in the documentary. It's on discovery plus you can watch it. It's called Finn, but I wanted to, I was like, if I don't use my voice for something, they they'll be gone. And there's, or they're not going to be able to recover and I will have done nothing. Um, and so that was terrifying making a doc because you're starting with ideas. You don't know what footage you're gonna get. I'm in it. I don't know if people are gonna accept me as a serious, not as a doc filmmaker, cause that's not my reputation. I'm more of like a provocateur, but it was really an amazing you know, experience going and doing that and met incredible activists. And I'm still very, very involved in shark conservation now. It really sort of gave me, my, me a whole other passion and purpose well, when um, you
1: can do something that contributes to social change, that's a pretty amazing accomplishment for a filmmaker to be able to do.
2: Well, I think that, you know, I'm I'm also it started me on the path of kind of making secret documentaries where when I was making Finn, I didn't I told everyone it was a documentary about fishing. I didn't want people to know it was about shark guns because we got access to places they never would have given us, so kind of quietly making documentaries about certain subjects, you can go, okay, um, let me just shoot this and then put it out there. If you if you make a big splashy announcement about it with Finn, no one would ever let you film. But if they're like, wait, aren't you the guy from Inglorious Bastards? You're okay. All right, yeah, sure. Go <laughs> ahead. You can film here. Like we just kind of show up, get the permission, sign the forms and shoot. And then just kind of let them talk and talk and talk and talk. And then I put it together later. So you know doing that, and then now I'm in, in the middle of uh, Borderlands, which is my first time doing a big visual effects extravaganza, which is a whole other different type of filmmaking. But I also I'm the kind of guy that wants to try everything at least once to know that if I want to do it or don't want to do it, going okay, I work with that star, I work with that star. I mean, when I made my martial arts movie, Riza's martial arts movie, The Man with the Iron Fist, we wrote it together. I spent a year with Riza from Wu-Tang Clan and me and Eric Newman and Mark Abraham. We went to China with RZA and I shot second unit for him. We had like it was Dave Batista's first big film. We had, a, we had a great time doing it, just being in China with RZA, shooting Kung Fu and Master Corey UN came in to help us out. So everything for me, like I feel I feel like life is like a uh, you always address your emails, fellow travelers. And like, I feel like we have very similar perspectives on that. Here we are in this forum passing through just here to experience as much as possible and interpret it in our own way and express ourselves and pass the message on. And hopefully you entertain some people and change some people's minds along the way, you know, different films have different purposes. I I like, you know, I'm not making movies necessarily to educate. I I always want to first and foremost entertain, but when you make a film like Finn, you're like, this is, I feel like I have a, I have a talent. It fits in with my horror sort of brand reputation name, talent of like, this is a different kind of horror movie, but one worth knowing about and investing in.
1: How do you think fatherhood has affected you as a filmmaker?
2: I mean, it's a very good question. You know, it definitely made me more conscious of making house. that I couldn't have made house with a clock in its walls without being a father because it's about ultimately accepting the responsibility of being a parent. So very much the film is a very personal film for me in that way. And I don't think I've ever even talked about it. I was just like, oh, I'm making a, you know, I'm making a fun, scary kids movie. But what attracted me to it was sort of the Jack Black character who's just kind of trying to be a buddy at first. And the Kate Blanchett character going, no, like being a parent is being terrified for your kid every single freaking minute and doing it anyway. That's being a parent. <laughs> And and no one's expecting, There's no thanks. This isn't a reward. Like you did a good job, you get a, a prize at the end. It's like this is what it is. So then you realize this is this is what life is. This is what we are here to do and supposed to do. So, um, in terms of, it's fun to you know watch him get into horror without it being forced on him. You know, I never. I was like, his tastes are going to be his tastes. I don't want him to. I'm not like going to be oh, I loved this stuff when I was that age. So he's, no, sit back, let nature take its course. Of course, he's super into horror and goes to Halloween Horror Nights and loves it and stuff. So it's it's fun. But in terms of being a director now, I, I also feel like it gives you good perspective on, it does change you for the better. It makes you grow in ways you wouldn't have had to before. And I think that, you know, even look, seeing Quentin as a father now, it's wonderful to see him, being a dad with two kids and how just there's like a kind of a contentment you feel. Well, the
1: beginnings and the endings of of the life cycles have so much impact on us, both as artists and as human beings, you know, becoming a parent, which I have not, um, but also going through the end of a life of a loved one. Both of those things affect people so artists in particular uh, i mean everybody equally in in terms of personal depth but artists it deepens you in in so many ways
2: yeah i mean look it's it's life you're you're not even if you stayed inside your apartment your whole life and never left stuff would still happen to you so um you know part of it is like getting hurt Watching others you love get hurt, the randomness of life, the unfairness of life, trying to process things that are beyond our comprehension that make no sense. And yeah, losing losing loved ones is just a reminder that there is an infinite number of sand in the hourglass. We are going to be gone soon. And I think certainly with horror, we're all dealing with death and under comprehending death and what is death and is this it? Do we continue? Do you feel the spirit of someone you loved and lost are they still there talking to you is that your imagination why do we connect to certain people so strongly and others you forget about them other people you met once and never forgot like what is that why are we so i've gotten much more kind of i guess religious or spiritual or much more interested in religion and spirituality and buddhism and reincarnation and all of these things and and sort of understanding what trying to process what what um any of this is, and I think that yeah, as an artist, you don't want to. I, I try never to think about like, oh, this makes me deep because I've suffered. Like I didn't. I, I remember there were kids in film school. We used to call them the, at Tisch School of the Arts, the Tisch starving artists, who were like wealthy kids from Connecticut that would go to New York City, and then squat in Williamsburg, which at the time was like derelict warehouses. (laughs) And they would have like no bathroom, no heating, no stove, but that like that struggle, like made them artists somehow. I always thought that was nonsense. And then, you know, tragedy happens to you, things happen to you, breakups happen to you, life happens to you, divorce happens, whatever. And it just sort of jars you and makes you feel things that you never had to confront and kind of going through therapy and talking about kind of processing the stuff in a healthy way and taking responsibility for the things you've done, the things you've said, sort of looking back at your behavior and lovingly cringing, trying not to be (laughs) too self-critical about like, Oh God, was I really, how can anyone stand to be in the same room as me? I was so obnoxious or being like, yeah, you know what? That's fine. Who cares? It was funny at the time, just sort of self-acceptance, all of these things. Um, But I think we try to channel it all into scary stories and just the thrill of a good scare. It never gets old.
1: And life and death is the ultimate storytelling anyway. We all experience it. And there's always the fear of the unknown or the drop dead date of when you drop dead.
2: Yeah, we all have a built-in obsolescence. You know, this (laughs) is it. Like, nobody knows. We're all looking to figure out when that date is. but you know, certain people are here for such a short amount of time and make such an impact, and other people are here for a long amount of time, and then you know, say, "Oh, I wish I'd done that. I wish I'd done that." I've really tried to look at the deaths of people that were close to me and loved ones, and obviously, COVID brought us all so much closer to death than I think any of us wanted to be. It was we're all just constantly confronted with it, and everybody knew someone, unless if if you didn't directly. Lose someone, you know someone very close who lost or who almost did. It was just just everywhere. So it really just made you, in a weird way, you just shed so much bullshit, so much worrying and concern about the stuff that didn't matter and continuing friendships with people that weren't necessarily serving you, that that maybe there was a moment in your life where you were really close with someone but now you're not. And that's okay. Like, it doesn't mean that you failed or that they've done anything wrong. It's just, you've grown, you're in a different place and maybe you need to focus on yourself or other things. So it just, you know, death just makes you realize how short life is and it makes you push yourself harder to do as much as possible. But then I find I'm overdoing it. And then I feel like I'm going to snap and have a breakdown and collapse. (laughs) But, um, you know, I'm like a, a dog, like I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go until I just physically collapse. Um, right. But I also feel like you know the way, like Terry Gilliam is like, I can't believe I'm going to die before I get a chance to make all the movies I have in my head. And I think we all feel that way. We all have yes. these stories. And you look at Stephen King and his creative output. You know, it's it's just unmatched. I mean, these and or even someone like Quentin when he's not making a movie, he's writing books. Or you, you're like constantly creating. You're just such. It's just what else is there other than expressing ourselves
1: yeah well let's change gears then and talk about the joy of death if we will in in scary movies and and uh, just the artifice that goes into it and and why we feel such joy when we go through something really tremendously horrific whether it's graphic or intense in what ways in particular italian movies you have so much knowledge about and so much passion for and what is it about the frisson of cinematic death that appeals to you
2: i mean it's so funny i got so into italian movies i mean my wife is italian she's she'll always look at me like you just want to live in a giallo that's why like we we were <laughs> going to move to florence we have a house that we rented in florence and then there was the rainstorm with lightning it was just like the beginning of suspiria and the whole house was flooding and the water's leaking in and we're about to get electrocuted. And she's like, are you happy now? Like now we're in your jalo." I'm like, yeah, all right. We can move back to LA now. Um, Yeah. The, the Italians are so operatic and, you know, whereas American violence was very realistic, the Italians were trying to pretend that their movies were American. So they would have a bunch of European actors speaking English And then they would redub them with like the same two or three American actors. Like every (laughs) cop, he's like, yeah, he always kind of talks like this. It's always that guy. He's like the New York cop. Like there'll be 95 movies. It sounds like the same guy. Um, And because these were the kind of American actors that were living in Italy at the time and in Rome and doing all the dubbing, but they sort of had no boundaries and no rules. Like they didn't know that a death scene was supposed to end. They just go on and on and on and on. Like, Volchi does this, you know, and you watch the Gates of Hell, which is, you know, City of the Living Dead, where they're just vomiting, vomiting guts. And then the eyeballs start bleeding. I mean, it's just the vomiting guts and then a maggot storm. And then the guys, you know, (laughs) Giovanni Lombardi Radice's head is in the drill press and it just goes on and on and on. It was like all this stuff that in American movies would have been cut by the censors in the Italian movies weren't. And we're so, laughing about it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's and we, so we much thought it was fun. so funny. Oh, <laughs> uh, they were so, they were hilarious because also like they were, they kind of had this alien quality to them and they didn't, the music was the goblin music. I, and, and they weren't, we weren't told they were Italian. So we're like, why do these just feel sort of weird and different from American movies? I don't understand it. But then, of course, with, you know, Laserdisc and then ultimately Blu ray and IMDb and the internet, you realized, you know, they, they had to change their names yes. in order yes. to get released. So like think of a French directors would never do that, but the Italians, you know, was de has 15 different names he directed <laughs> movies under and they were just doing one after another. They would just shoot and shoot and shoot. Or Joe D'Amato, you know, made 200 movies. I mean, at the end of his life, he was just making porn films, but to support his company and to pay for things. But he was a, you know, fascinating director where he would just go to a location and crank out six movies in a row and he'd be shooting them, and then, you know, the actor who went under the name is uh, George Eastman, but it was actually Luigi Montefiore, who's in Anthropophagus and Porno Holocaust. Like he'd be writing the scripts in the afternoon, and then they'd be shooting them. And then he's like, "Let's just stay another two weeks and shoot another movie. We we got the location still. We've already built the sets." So you get all these kind of weird films that were just from another time. And if you sort of click into the aesthetic, it's like listening to a vinyl and you start to like the crackle and you like the spaces between the songs and you like getting up and flipping the record, like Italian horror is like that. It's sort of an acquired taste, but once it clicks in, I just obsess over it. And there are like these fantastic European beauties um, that would just appear in a couple of these films and then disappear you know, you'd see the girl with the green eyes, everyone's like, oh, the girl with the green eyes and Inferno, and she's and the babysitter, um, you know, and then you can look her up on Instagram now and see what she's doing. It's just, it's just interesting with social media that you can literally, you know, I used to dream of Gloria Guida, and now I follow her on Instagram. So (laughs) what do you want?
1: So do you think it has to do with the sanguinary aspects of Catholicism to a degree?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, well, Fulci's movies were very much about Catholicism and attacks on the Catholic Church. There were a lot of uh, a lot of that went into them. And, you know, Dario Argento as well. The the Italian horror was all like very, very a lot of the times about kind of Catholicism and repression.
1: And Dario Uh, considers himself a good Catholic and prays on the set. I've seen him do it.
2: Really? So yeah, they they are. I mean, they're religious. They the thing is, it's all magic tricks to us. It's all makeup effects, you know. And the fantastic Sergio Stivaletti makeup effects were so beautiful. And Sergio Salvati, the DP. I mean, they all came over from from spaghetti westerns. And if you recall, the spaghetti westerns, they they didn't know that you weren't allowed to show blood in America. You weren't allowed to show blood. But you have Sergio Corbucci and Sergio Leone just doing blood shots on camera with squibs. Suddenly the American movies seem old fashioned and they add electric guitar. So suddenly our soundtracks, which were like classical orchestration, now you have this morricone with like whistling and then electric guitar. And it's like, what <laughs> is going on over here? So Then the Americans start copying that with Wild Bunch. And then we come out with our like the film brats and their crime. And so the Italians do their police versions. Then the Italians make the Jallo films. And we start doing the slasher films kind of copied from Mario Bava and Bay of Blood. And Bob Clark does Black Christmas. So it's it's there's a real interesting symbiotic relationship between American genre film and Italian genre. And then it all stopped in Italy. The whole thing just dried up. And then now they only make television over there. A lot of it was state funded. A lot of the People stop going to the movies. It just, all the directors, you know, Sergio Martino, Ruggiero Deodato, all of them lament the death of the film industry. I don't think they, nobody knows when you're in a golden age, but that was the golden age of Italian genre cinema in the 70s and 80s.
1: And you made one of your own with Green Inferno. I mean, you were making my, yeah, a my homage. Deodato movie.
2: Yeah, I, I dedicated it to Deodato. I used some Roberto Donati music. I, I, I wanted it to feel, it wasn't a remake, It was more just like if you were in the video story, you would see it on the shelf next to Cannibal Holocaust. (laughs) That's what I wanted. You're never going to be Cannibal Holocaust. You're never going to replicate what they did in that film. It is unmatched on any level. But I did think I can go to a place in the jungle because, you know, Deodato makes fun of Lindsay saying, ah, he's shooting in the botanical gardens and going back to his hotel. He's like, We were in the jungle. And Lindsay's like, I was in the jungle too, you know. And we not all of us went to Colombia, but I was in the jungle. And Sergio Martino's like, I was in the jungle in Sri Lanka. Like to make a cannibal movie, you have to have like gone into the jungle in a in a location that was potentially very dangerous with like very difficult, it had to be like Werner Herzog, Fitzcarraldo, Gary, the wrath of God. And that's where we shot in Peru. And it was amazing. I mean, I don't think you could do what we did now, now with the safety regulations. I mean, the stuff 10 years ago, people weren't checking these things. So we just went off and we had a great time and now it's, it's funny because it became people's introductions to cannibal movies. And because of the green inferno, they went and watched, you know, cannibal ferox and cannibal holocaust and mountain of the cannibal god and (laughs) you know all of them the michaeli massimo tarantini films um massacre and dinosaur valley which doesn't have a cannibal title but is a cannibal movie there's such great ones out there amazonia it's it, it to me the the italian cannibal movies were like of a reviled genre that was but these were like the grade z Bottom of the barrel, like even horror fans are like, oh, I could never enjoy Cannibal Hall, the animal killings, blah, 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 blah. like people are very, people love to piss on the can, and I'm like, you know what? These guys went out in the jungle and they worked with people that didn't know what a camera was and didn't speak a word of English, and they lived in trees, and literally people that lived in like, I mean, Deodato went and found real tribes and shot with them and got them to act. It was like the fact that he did that shooting on film in the jungle, you know, Sergio Martino told me that a plane would come once a week to pick up the film and leave. And that was yeah. it. And then drop off more film. That's how they did it. And they didn't even know there was no dailies. There's no rushes. They're sleeping in tents. So I wanted that experience. And it was about the fact that of course you can't find that anymore. There's nowhere that everything's been conquered. So these kids go to protect it. And then, they're playing Crashlands, and they become the food supply for the village and then they want the bulldozers to show up so it was really about kind of social justice warrior activism before that term existed we shot it in 2012 we were calling it slacktivism sort of lazy vanity activism but <laughs> it's crazy how kind of prescient the film was looking at it now and what yeah. people do and what people brag about and how people like retweet causes and post about causes just to look good rather than actually believing in them so the film was sort of a little bit ahead of that curve. It's fun. You know, we thought we were going too far with it. They were like, well, these kids are like so ridiculous, but now it looks like we didn't go far enough. It's funny.
1: (laughs) Well, the last several years, you've spent more time producing than directing. And one of the reasons we're talking now is because you've got a new show, Eli Roth Presents, Urban Legend, which is taking these urban legends, these horror stories. It's an anthology series, a horror anthology, four of all places the travel channel so yes. horror has been mainstreamed so much that the travel channel is now in on it so tell me what led up to this i mean you did uh, a ghost Through in my life and you, you did urban Eli legend Ross. and the
2: haunted museum yeah well yeah. what's happened is um and it, it's interesting as the projects get bigger they take longer to prepare like borderlands it's not that i haven't been directing it's just a long shoot, a long prep, and a lot of the effects and a long post. then you throw in COVID yeah. and you're waiting to shoot some additional photography. And now the actors are stuck and getting every everyone wrangled again. It's suddenly, you know, a year goes by. You're like, oh, okay. So in the meantime, Travel Channel contacted me and they said, forget the word travel. Our biggest thing is paranormal. Do you have any shows like that? And I said, well, I've always wanted to do a show called Supernatural Stalker about like, what if your ex-girlfriend died and was stalking you and was mad you're dating again it was a ghost like is that real and then we found cases where that really happened but i thought i want to broaden it to beyond relationships so i called it a ghost ruin my life um and they gave us the money we shot it and it's great they they run on travel and then they'll stream travel got bought by discovery plus and then they merge so now they're on travel channel they air and then they live on discovery plus and now there's a third service coming and it's going to take it all so we it's like it's being in the middle of this sort of tsunami that's happening with, with HBO Max
1: is merging with uh, HBO it's all merging.
2: So my thing is, let me just make low cost entertainment. That's fun and scary. And we're shooting them in Toronto, all these fantastic new directors, you know, doing this show for Zach Baggins, the haunted museum, he has all these haunted objects, the sort of the way the Warrens had their objects. They investigated. He has the largest collection of haunted objects in the world in a museum. And he wanted to do like anthology episodes. And so I came on to help with the scripts and we, these fantastic directors, whether it's Adam McDonald or Ethan Evans or Justin Harding or Kat Hostick or Roxy Shee, um, they're doing great, great, really scary episodes and discovery plus and travel channel will trust me to just go nuts. So with urban legend um, you know, they, I got the the rights to the film series. They said, do you want to, th- they said they don't want to make the studio doesn't want to make this as a movie anymore, but would you want to come in and continue it as a TV series? I said, Absolutely. So I said, you know what? Might these might be lower budget, but I can have this on the air in October. And I went to travel channel and Discovery Plus, and they're like, Yep, let's go right away. So there are all these fantastic new directors. Um, you know, like Kat Hostic, Roxy Shee, Ethan Evans, Justin Harding. Um, where do you where find them? They're they've uh this company I work with Cream Productions in Toronto. They have worked with them before, uh, and they made short films like Roxy She had made a short at Crypt TV, my digital company that they yeah that I loved and I always felt, and she'd done a Hallmark movie, but I like really wanted to help, you know, help her out and and give her a shot to tell more horror stories. Cause she's, I think she's definitely, definitely feature, feature film ready. Ethan Evans was a discovery um, by Kate Harrison, my producer. She, she's like, you look at this guy, Ethan, he's incredible. And a local guy, Justin Harding in Toronto. I mean, they're really fantastic directors that are, that grew up on my movies and that want to do what I'm doing. And they're, You know, if you give them five or six days, they'll go crazy and make something that's really terrifying. And what's cool with Discovery is, I told them that where these shows go wrong, and I think you did it brilliantly with Masters of Horror, but where where the shows go wrong on a thing like Travel Channel is if the thing has to be 42 minutes or 44 minutes or whatever, you can't stretch scenes to be 44 minutes because the, the scare has its own rhythm. It might be absolutely terrifying at 35 minutes. But really boring at 42 minutes because that <laughs> extra time you put in. So, why don't you let me make the scariest episode? And then, whatever time I have to fill, I'll interview the director. So, it's like if I could watch Masters of Horror and the episode ended, went right into an interview with Mike or Dario or any of those Coscarelli, I'd want to watch it. So, especially with new directors you're kind of giving them a shot at like, hey, this is who I am. And I ask them about their techniques and how they prepare and what their influences are, but also what is their other work? Where can people find them? So I really want to put the spotlight on new directors. So it's
1: kind of what we did on the Z Channel where we'd show the movie and then we'd talk to the filmmaker. But but in this case, it's made specifically for that and and you're a great host you do it very well and it just bangs Thanks, right man. in i've seen the first one with ethan yeah which worked really great we call
2: it film i was like let's just call it filmmaker to filmmaker and now i'm fighting to take the interviews as half an hour and put them out as podcast companions each episode so um you know we had this episode three ring inferno um this d- fantastic fantastic directing team directed and there it's a yeah you know, they they're on black fawn films you can look them up on instagram but you know it, it, they they're so happy for the opportunity and you know um and they and they just do an amazing job it's really it's really fun it's really great to watch people that are so excited um or someone like kat hostick who is an actor and a stunt woman. and she directed like a bunch of episodes of ghost room in my life and my possessed pet she's doing friday nights episode the choking doberman that's going to air on on uh, urban legend and she's such a good director she also did the creep in the wall so we're taking these classic urban legend and you know have fantastic writers and fantastic writer directors some people are adapting other scripts some people are writing directing their own um but the show turned out great it's really fun it's really scary and there's one of these things where they're like travel channels like we use non-sag actors there's no union actors so i thought is that going to be difficult like who are you going to get that's are there good actors out there that are just theater actors? And the answer is yes. And the weird effect it has is that you don't know them a lot of the time. So you just get into it. Yeah, It's just a good story. And then you go, that person is fucking fantastic. So all of a sudden, it's like not just, it's like you're using, you're hinging it on a classic urban legend, but you have a new director that you've never heard of and new cast members. And when it's great, you go, That's pretty cool. I want to look them all up and they're all, and I want to follow them and it gives them an opportunity. So the nice thing is that they travel channel and discovery have been really great with me. They leave us alone. We basically, I just say, these are the stories I want. They go, this is how much money we have. We go, okay, this is what we got. Can you do this in five days, six days? Here you go, go for it. And also I'm look, I'm looking at all the scripts. I'm looking at every single edit. We have a really great team. Um, obviously my name's on it. So I want them to be terrific. But part of the fun is that it's like I'm presenting it and I'm presenting these new filmmakers that I hope will go on to have amazing careers.
1: Oh, well, it's kind of what Spielberg did with amazing stories.
2: Uh, Absolutely.
1: He had the big time guys. He had Scorsese and Zemeckis and all that, but gave opportunities to people like Todd Holland and and Leslie Linka Gladder and myself and other yeah. people, you know people who had not proven themselves necessarily.
2: Yeah, no. And you can use that, you know, your amazing stories episode to show what you can do to then get a feature film going.
1: Exactly. So
2: that's, that's the fun part is you can do it. It's also like it's television. It doesn't quite have the same, it's not like judge the same way a movie is, you know, people are more forgiving and they just sort of are like tuning in to have a fun night of TV. And so far the show has been great. It's really delivered. It's doing very well for travel channel but you know they're all everyone's scared for their jobs. There's going to be a merger. They're cutting costs there. So the nice thing is doing horror. It's low cost and high value. People watch it, so it's it's been great. I know it's called the Travel Channel. Maybe that will change, but it's worked for me. Worked out great for me.
1: Well, it seems like there are urban legends from around the country. It's not. You could justify it being a Travel Channel show just by that.
2: That's a good idea. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that one. <laughs>
1: But what do you feel about the availability? I mean, movies now are filling slots on all these streaming channels and networks and all of that. And how do you how do you find the wheat from the chaff? How, you know, you get a thumbnail. It's hard on, on it's on hard Netflix and.
2: I mean, that's why, look, Video Archives podcasts, listening to your podcast, there's certain, you know, tastemakers, they're like sommeliers of horror movies. (laughs) Um, But that's why a streaming service like the Arrow Channel, I trust them. You know, it's worth it for the five or six bucks a month. I love that label. I love the movies. If they have a new film, if they have a cult film, if there's an obscure British film, I'm I'm in. I watch all of it. So I'll take a chance on those movies. It's like, it's like Criterion, but for horror. Shudder does that as well. So, you know, there's certain streaming services that specialize in these things. And I just sign. I'm, it's worth it for me to pay. You can justify it as two trips to Starbucks a month or whatever. (laughs) Like it's not that expensive and you can have access to these amazing remasters of cult movies. Um, Otherwise you're at the mercy of just figuring it out from an algorithm or hearing about it from a friend or deep diving on a director you like.
1: Well, not to put you on the spot, but give us like, maybe five cult movies that the audience might not be aware of that you think they're really missing out on?
2: Oh, well, it depends what, you know, I love Emmanuel in the last cannibals that is like a mix of an Emmanuel from Joe D'Amato. And it turns into a really crazy cannibal movie. Another really great one is Michele Massimo Tarantini's massacre in dinosaur Valley, which sort of, it starts as a cannibal movie then halfway flips into like, almost like the end of Django where there's like an evil diamond merchant mm-hmm. kind of guy. You were um,
1: talking about Alice, sweet Alice on Quentin. Oh my God, Alice, sweet
2: Rogers. Alice. I can't recommend highly enough. I, I can't love that. You know, so what a beautiful movie. It's yeah. truly a, we've talked about it before at the dinners. It's a Jallo film, yeah. the yellow raincoat, everything about it. I definitely, definitely recommend, um, Alice, sweet Alice. I'm trying to think what else. I was is lucky
1: like. enough to work with uh, with Alfred for a while. I was his assistant on Tanya's Island, and I helped write the first draft with him. Now, that's a movie that's hard to come by, and rightfully so. But Alfred was a truly gifted guy who became a TV production designer.
2: Amazing production designer. I would definitely look up uh, Toby Dammit. The Fellini oh, yeah. film is on as as a solo. They re, remastered that solo. That is on Criterion Channel.
1: Oh, I didn't realize they split them
2: up. They split them up. Yeah, you don't have to watch *Spirits of the Dead*. Um, I watched a British film about nuclear holocaust that was a TV movie called oh, Threads. *Threads*. Yeah, Jesus, that really freaked me out. Um, so yeah, those those are a few. Those are ones that I hadn't seen that I was like, man, this is uh, this is insane. Threads blew me away. Threads was one of the most disturbing films I've seen in a long time. Yeah. You can't go wrong with Barbarella, the classic. You know, I love Barbarella. Barbarella, you know, the the colors, the production design, the campiness, all of it. It's so much fun.
1: Roger Vadim, yeah.
2: Roger Vadim. I think they're showing it Friday at the New Beverly. Tarantino's got a whole program for his book, Cinema Speculation, at the uh, New Beverly Cinema.
1: And that book, by the way, if you haven't read Cinema Speculation by Quentin Tarantino, it's fantastic.
2: It's amazing. And you will
1: walk away wanting to catch up on all of these movies. All of these movies. Incredible. It's pretty amazing. Um, So when can we expect Borderland? Uh,
2: Good question. We're finishing it now. I mean, we we had delays because of COVID. uh, And I know that sounds generic, but Unfortunately, it's like if you want to shoot another day with an actor, you're at the mercy of their project, which gets pushed because of COVID. So suddenly, like wrangling an ensemble cast was very difficult. Uh, I don't know. We don't have released release date yet, but we're, the movie will be done in June, and then it's up to Lionsgate. They're they're deciding all that now. It'll either be fall of next year or, or spring of 2024, but it's up to them. I mean, they have John McFord It's like it's they they have the release calendar they figure that out. I just make it a movie.
1: <laughs> well, I can't wait to see it. And thank Eli, you, thank you so much for catching us up and uh, good luck with, uh, with urban legend.
2: Thank you. And organize another dinner. Everyone wants one.
1: All right, we'll do it.
2: All right. Talk to you Great soon, to mate. see you. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to
1: Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Post Mortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts.